They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk to music. Podcast balls. Got the charts in my sights. So when they list the gay shows, they won't be all white. Trying to take things over while these haters ain't looking. Tried to take me down, but they just got took in. What's up? How's everybody this week? Say, how's everybody this week? Glad to be back. I'm glad to be back. Hey. What's up? What's up? Another week, another week. What's up? What's up? Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. You can read some of my music writing at rnbeing.com. I'm also an author who has written a number of books. You got the biography, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. You know, maybe you're in love. Maybe you've had a summer breakup or whatever. Luther's good for either one. You know, you're playing you some good Luther songs to get over something or to get into something. Hey, it's the biography is nice to read along. Get yourself some context to the songs you are either celebrating or not celebrating too. Um, but I hope y'all are celebrating. I hope this is the summer of love for you. I hope everything is good. Uh, and then you can read my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe. All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. A Perfect Hot Girl or Hot Gay Summer Read, if I do say so myself. Um, and then there's my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love. And that one is called Who's Your Daddy? Now, I'm going to give some special attention to Who's Your Daddy this week because it deals with themes that are similar to um, the last episode of Pose. Uh, I believe it was called Re- Revelations. Now, without giving away too much of a spoiler, because I know some of y'all be taking your time to get around to the ep- episodes. Don't take your sweet time to push the thing up to the FX. Um, there's an intergenerational gay relationship on the show. And of course, that's the entire theme of my novel, which was released in 2016. So don't try it. Um, but anyway, I was actually glad to see this portrayed on the screen because I think too often when gay people talk about intergenerational relationships, it really falls into myths and cliches and concepts like the dirty old man, the trophy boy, the sugar daddy, and the gold digger. But what I found personally in many of my relationships with younger guys is that the dynamics of attraction can be far more complex. So those were my my reasons for writing the book um, because I really didn't see this complexity um, of these types of relationships. I didn't see this represented enough in a modern context. And you know what the late, great Toni Morrison said? If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. So what did I do? A bitch wrote it. 
Um, and I'm going to share with you one seduction scene from the book that has some parallels to the opening scene from Pose, just so you can kind of get a sense of what the book is about. So let me refer to my text. <laughs> Uh, so this is a, this is a scene between Michael, who's a photographer, who's, um, about to turn 40. He's done the whole thing of, he's worked in New York for a long time at the big magazines and all this kind of stuff, but he moved to Providence, Rhode Island to kind of stake out on his own, to get away from the corporate, to try to do something a little bit more art artistic. And Chase is this, uh, young kind of tough guy that he just met. But he's really gorgeous, and so Michael wants to take some pictures of him. So this is the first time that Chase has been over to Michael's apartment to take pictures. Um, and they had just finished up um, the shoot. So, here we go. Can I ask you a question, Chase said. Michael pushed pause on the remote. Sure. Would you mind if I crashed on your sofa tonight? The question made Michael freeze in mind and body. It's just that me and my girl are going at it. She don't want me to come home. You don't have anywhere else to go, Michael said reflexively. Not really, just my mom's, but me and her are sort of beefing too. She thinks I smoke too much weed, Chase laughed. Michael didn't say anything right away. He knew he shouldn't let the kids stay over. It was the sort of move that would make everyone tisk-tisk as they watched the reenactment of his murder on Dateline. But... He really wanted more time with Chase. He really wanted him to stay. It's okay if you don't want me to, Chase said. I mean, we just met. I probably shouldn't have asked. No, it's fine, Michael interrupted. He looked over at Chase, whose mouth curled into a grin. They spent the rest of the evening watching TV on Michael's bed, close but not touching. My Michael surrendered the remote to Chase, who chose to watch Superbad. It was one of my favorite movies in junior high, Chase said, making Michael feel old enough to be encased in glass at the Natural History Museum. When the movie was over, Chase said, Guess I'll go to sleep now. He rose from the bed, opened his arms, and wrapped Michael in a hug. And really, man, thanks for letting me stay. No problem, Michael said, hugging back tightly and hoping Chase couldn't feel his quickening heartbeat. Michael slipped into bed, but was unable to sleep. He kept feeling like he was close to sleep, but something stopped him from crossing over. It was precisely because he was in this weird state that he thought he was hallucinating when he heard a slight tapping at his door. But as the noise continued and steadily grew louder, he realized it was for real. Then he heard his name. Michael? Chase asked in a sleepy whisper. Yeah, Michael answered. Chase entered the room. I know this is weird, Chase said, but your couch is super hard. I can't sleep. Do you mind if I stay in here? And I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so that's my little intergenerational gay seduction scene. Take that pose. No, but just saying, um... If you do like that, if you enjoyed that, then uh, you should know that I read the entire audiobook myself, and it's available on Audible, and you can even get it with a free trial. Um, like I think they offer a free monthly trial or something. You may have to give up, you may have to get up off some credit card digits, but you know, 
as long as you cancel. Remember, I told y'all about looking for that about about make sure that rebuild don't hit. As long as you make sure the rebuild don't hit, you know, you should be good. Um, but for a limited time, you know, because I know y'all are on your end of summer trips and such and whatnots, um, I've put the whole audiobook on YouTube in a playlist. So if you just go to YouTube and just hit the first video, chapter one, it'll just play the whole damn thing. And, you know, I like to make things easy for y'all to get to. So, um, because I know a lot of y'all are driving and mass transportating and whatnot. So, the entire audiobook on YouTube is at tinyurl.com slash daddybook. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash daddybook. And I'll put all of this on the Craig's Pop Life website. Now, lastly, if you want to read it um, you know, like words and whatnot, you know, you really want to, to take it old school, to take it back. Um, it's free for a limited time on the app Wattpad. And it's easy. You can download Wattpad on iTunes or Android, and you can just read it chapter by chapter for free. So I'm just doing this as a, like a little summer gift and everything. I just want y'all to enjoy yourselves, have some fun, interesting to read. And I hope you enjoy the book. And all I ask is that if you like it, please tell a friend. So moving on. Um, let's see. That's this week, y'all. God damn. I mean, Lord, I mean, I'm really moving on because I really do want to move on from this week because this week has been a motherfucker. I mean, last week when, you know, during the Salon show and I was talking about the relationship between visibility and backlash, I could not have imagined that within days we see a shooting at an El Paso um, Walmart. You know, they're saying the biggest attack on Latinos in history in the U.S., um... I could not have imagined the Dayton, Ohio shooting. I could definitely not have imagined the ice raid in Mississippi that detained the parents of hundreds of children on their first damn day of school. Could not have imagined that. And I could not have imagined that there was a Nazi running around Las Vegas, scoping out synagogues and a gay club in order to bomb them. And this motherfucker was so for real with the shit. He was trying to recruit a local homeless man to help him with his surveillance of the gay club so that he could get everything right. Now, I am all for giving jobs to the homeless, but motherfucker trying to recruit people into this mess. I mean, Lord, it's just too scary to um, it's really just too scary to think about. And as I said last week, we are living in a time. Uh, we don't know what the time's going to be called. We don't know. We're pretty sure when the time began. Um, but we don't know when the time's going to end. We don't know the winners or losers. We don't know what. We are living in something. And it is just what it is. And it's some terrifying shit. But for strength, I kept returning this week to one of my favorite Nina Simone songs, Backlash Blues, and it just always gives me um, sort of a larger frame for understanding disempowerment in a kind of like racialized or, you know, sexualized way. It just, 
Um, and I'm just going to quote from Miss Nina. Um, when I try to find a job to earn a little cash, all you got to offer is your mean old white backlash. But the world is big, big and bright and round. And it's full of folks like me who are black, yellow, beige, and brown. So, Mr. Backlash, I'm going to leave you with the blues. So, like I said, that's what I've been listening to on repeat. I'll put my favorite version of her doing the song, um, which I believe she wrote with Langston Hughes. But I'll put um, my favorite version of her doing the song on the website. But there are many versions of it. Um, I, this happens is one that she does live in Paris that it just happens to be my things but you know that's not all I can say is just stay strong folks stay out there definitely stay with your eyes open um but you know at the same time um don't let this steal your joy because that's what terrorism is about right terrorism is making it so that you can't enjoy things so that you're thinking more about the possibility that an incident can happen than you are enjoying the moment in your life that you will never get back. So we have to fight against that too. So, um, y'all, but we're in this together and we just, we just going to talk about this time. <laughs> yes, week to week, we just going to be finding out more about this time we live it in and how it fits in with the culture of the time. And like I said, it's, it's going to be, it's interesting the very least. Um, and to keep on a Nina Simone note, a lot of you guys know that she's one of my faves. I've written about her a lot uh, over the years. You can find much of that at rnbeing.com. I also try to put the links on the, um, on the website. Because growing up, you know, my mom had this huge, had a huge record collection. Like, that was very important. And I would always, um, you know, just go through records as a little boy, but just go, you know, you go through stuff. You don't know why you're drawn to something, you know, it's the cover, it's the this and that and whatever. And she had this album, Nina Simone, Live in Paris. It was a two album set. And I don't know if it was like the energy of the show or just what, but that I just played that album. And we're not talking, we're talking about like I'm in elementary school and something like that, but I just loved that album, played that album constantly. Um, throughout my entire life and it wasn't until like the cd era that i realized that it was a very rare recording um and so like not i thought it was like a nina simone classic or something what i found out is a lot of people like the, the real nina simone aficionados really only knew about it but um Songs like Devil's Workshop and Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood and House of the Rising Sun and Life really made me aware of her sharp musicianship and vocal storytelling. I know Life helped me out. The live version of Life helped me out a lot when I was coming out and just kind of trying to realize that my sexuality was a thing of power, you know what I mean? And that I had the right to express that. Um... So I'll try to, I don't think the Live in Paris album is on YouTube, but if you're really pressed for it, you know, send me an email or something like that. But it is definitely um, one of my favorite Nina Simone um, recordings. So all that to say, I've been obsessed with Nina Simone from way back, read everything, you know, I could about her. And of course, I loved the, do the 2015 documentary on Netflix. Well, it's still on Netflix, but it came out in 2015. What happened, Miss Simone? 
But in the course of this week, just turning to Nina, you know, like turning to her in times of trouble, I discovered something I did not know, that there was another documentary about her that came out at the same time, the same year um, as what happened Miss Simone called The Amazing Nina Simone. Um, I guess they were going for like a Marvel comp, like The Amazing Spider-Man. I guess they were going for that kind of look. But anyway, and um, this was something I discovered and watched for the first time on Amazon Prime this week. And I'll put the link on the website. So it was just like, I couldn't, it was one of those things like, how could this have passed by me? But I guess it's just because the other one was so, got so much attention. This just kind of got swept under the rug. So you're probably asking, what are the primary differences between what happened with Simone and the amazing Nina Simone? Well, hold for a second. Let me get some of my Red Bull. Well, what happened, Miss Simone, is just a better film in every sense of what a film is supposed to be. You know, the way it's put together, the poetic imagery, and the way that Nina's own voice dominates the narrative. I mean, it's just a better, even if you didn't care a bit about Nina Simone, you would look at it and say, okay, this is a better film. Um Whereas, and that film, What Happened, Miss Simone, that was authorized by the estate and included the participation of Nina's daughter, Lisa Simone Kelly. So, you know, which is, you know, that's actually not necessarily the case to make a great film. Because in my opinion, um, when, we were when we were talking about the Whitney Houston documentaries, the one that was authorized by the family, Whitney, I hate and think it's real trashy and like just digging into stuff that didn't need to be dug up if it's even you know just doing all sorts of all over the placeness with it whereas i love the can i be me that features a lot of footage especially from the my love is your love tour so you know the whether or not the family's involved is hit or miss but what makes um the amazing Nina Simone so good is that it includes a lot of interviews with people that knew her, whereas um, the Netflix one kind of focuses on her story, her, Nina telling her own story, and also Nina's daughter chiming in here and there, whereas um, the amazing Nina Simone includes multiple voices, and that is really... Um, interesting and even though it's not authorized by the estate it includes the participation of a lot of her family members um i didn't even know she had so many family members and childhood friends and all sorts of people but um even like her school principals and it, i mean it has a lot of people but one of the main ones is her brother samuel wayman um who is a musician in his own right one of his notable um one of the things he's known for is collaborating with experimental black filmmaker Bill Gunn on the cult film um, Ganja and Hess. So, you know, he's done some things on his own right. But anyway, this documentary gives us some really great um, family history. We learn that her grandparents were once enslaved but free during their lifetimes. Um, her mother was an ordained minister. And young Nina, then, of course, who was just... Eunice would play during the services and the film also uncovers an early version of Eunice singing take me to the water and that was really great hearing like Nina Simone pre Nina Simone you know she sounded like 
a little girl. So it's um, that was really interesting. And while doing a, a church program with her mother, she was discovered by a classically trained white piano teacher and a white patron who agreed to pay for her piano lessons. So that's how she got into um, classical piano. And she just always felt like she would be, she was groomed and she felt like she would be the first black classical pianist. Um, but her brother talks about how even though she was obsessed with that and that really fueled her, that was her reason for being, it also alienated her from the other kids. She felt as if she couldn't do ordinary things because, in his words, she was bred to be a classical pianist. So it was, you know, it was a hard life for a, a, a it was a very serious life for a little girl. And for a little black girl um, growing up in North Carolina, where she had to cross the tracks from the white side of town, from the black side of town to the white side of town in order to take these lessons, you know. And you know people have shit to say, you know. Ooh, who she thinks she, oh, she must think she, oh, why, oh she like, mm -mm, uh, you know people have stuff to say, so... Um, and some of the only moments of escape that she'd have is when her mother would leave home. Cause you know, her mother was all about either you playing something church, churchified, or you playing something classical, but that's all that her mother was allowing up in the house. But when her mother would leave home and they would be sure that she was gone, gone, you know, like gone for a good little while, Nina and her father would play jazz tunes and dance around the house. So that was one of her moments of escape and joy that she had. Um, so I found all of these personal early details really interesting about the amazing, from the amazing Nina Simone. And one thing, I mean, it really does its research because one thing, they even show her entire high school transcript. Now, I know if somebody does, if, you know, my dream is for there to be an America, a PBS American Masters one day made about me. I want them, I, I, and you know, I'm a truthful person. I'll share anything. I just don't think I want people looking at my high, whole ass high school transcript. I don't know something about that. It just seems too, like, I don't know. But, um, no, it shows her whole ass high school transcript. And let's just say that her grades suggest that she has skills for many, many future endeavors. But being somebody's stay-at-home wife was not one of them. Okay, if, if somebody was choosing a wife based on her report card, <laughs> she would not get chosen. Because Okay, so when it came to English, algebra, world history, American history, biology, and chemistry... She brought home, it was all A's, just A with A, 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 year after year, semester after semester, just A, A, A. But in home economics, and I don't even know, I'm probably of that first generation of not having home economics be a part of the curriculum because, you know, I was talking to my mother about it and she definitely had it in the thing. Home economics, Miss Eunice, um, the future Miss Nina was not feeling it. She got B's, with like one exception, she got B's across the board. So that tells you right then that even when she was going through her high school years, she had a sense of herself as being more than just the appendage to some man and, you know, just taking care of some man's family. Just the way that she oriented herself to the serious craft of learning classical piano and also mastering these um these very serious subjects shows that, you know, there was kind of a feminist consciousness there, um, even at a very young age. And so from there, the film just chronicles, you know, the story, how she 
didn't get into um she didn't get the full a full scholarship into the music school. I can't even remember the name of it now in Philadelphia. So therefore her dream of being a classical pianist was kind of thwarted and she became a she became a performer in Atlantic City nightclub. She ain't really want to be singing in it, but um the owner said, "Well, I need a singer." And she says, I don't sing. And then he was like, well, you don't have a job. Then she was like, well, I guess I sing. So, you know, she that's how she became a nightclub singer. And she didn't want her mother, you know, who was holy, holy, to know that her daughter was singing in some Atlanta City dive. So that's how she, um, that's why she changed her name from Eunice to Nina, um, like the Spanish for little girl, like Nina. Um and then Simone for the actress Simone Signoret. So, you know, the, the film goes all of that, how she went from that to becoming the defining voice of the civil, one of the defining voices, musical voices of the civil rights movement and the toll that took. But, again, you know, it just shows you how you can tell the same story, but it's like cooking the same dish. You know, somebody might add a little seasoned salt, somebody might add a little um, lorries, somebody might put a little cracked pepper, you know, it's it's the same dish, kind of, but the spices, uh, the distinctions of everything, because this one mentions all of the um, relationships that she had with women, even during her tumultuous, um, tumultuous, often violent marriage to manager Andy Strahd. Like, he was cool with, they was cool with it. Like, they was getting down with the get down. You know, I guess they, I guess we call them, well, I guess swing is when you swing together, I suppose. I don't know, is it swing when you swing apart? But basically, they had their little, they they had their little side thingy things. And one of the women that Nina was involved with was the daughter of legendary choreographer Catherine Dunham. Her name was Marie Christine Dunham Pratt. And she had this to say about Nina. Now, she loved Nina now, but she said, nobody could be with Nina for long because she's overpowering. She's just too much. So that gives you a little sense of, and I think Nina's daughter even says that in the Netflix documentary, like just the grand, imposing, super serious, proclaiming thing, all the stuff that we know about Nina Simone on the stage. Her daughter was like, that's just Nina Simone. That's how she was all the time so I think that was exhausting for a lot of people around her and probably for her too you know um because she struggled with the expectations and responsibilities that came with having that great talent and one of the songs that Nina felt expressed her feelings about fame and the sometimes strained relationship to her audience was Stars by Janice Ian. um And she recorded a live version of this in 1986. It's all on the streaming sites. But this one part I think is especially poignant when she sings, Stars, they go out like the last light of the sun, all in a blaze, and all you see is the glory, but it gets lonely there. So I think you know, she's, I mean, and, and a lot of stars complain about that, you know, we look at them and we, we all we see is the glory, right? But we don't see the, um, the struggle and it was interesting because this was kind of going on and I was kind of like going watching this and going through this period of time when Mary dropped her new single Mary J. Blanche dropped her new single called No 
And now we know Mary's always been open with us about sharing the struggles she goes through in order to do what she does for us. You know, we know what she had to go through to make my life, for my life to save other people's lives. Like, we know that. And I guess this song is just kind of an update of that story. You know, she's just telling us once again, y'all, this is hard. Don't take me for granted because I really bleed to do this shit, you know, and I guess it that story is deserving of an update after her recent BET Lifetime Achievement Awards. Um, and just one part, she sings, um, they just don't know how many times I've lost just so I can win. And that just even hit me as a creative person because, like, when you see somebody out here, whether it's me, anybody else, anybody doing anything artistically, whether they're a writer, whether or not they're, whatever they're doing, usually the thing that they are doing comes despite countless disappointments of things that they have not been able to do. So you, what, if anybody is doing anything, generally, artistically, it represents many times of picking themselves up off the floor after, he or after hearing no or after something failing or something like that because that's just the nature of creative work and that's just what it happens and it's sort of like people think just because you're doing it that it no longer hurts it didn't hurt doesn't hurt to fall down yes it hurts every time you fall down and you skin your knee it hurts there is no salve there's no fame there's no sales or anything that is going to make your knee not hurt if your bare ass knee makes contact with the concrete that's gonna be a motherfucker it's gonna sting you're gonna need some mercuricone or whatever it's called you're gonna need some bactine <laughs> it's real but the thing about it is that, you know, if you want to do creative work, you have to force yourself to get up off that nasty ass knee and keep on trucking, you know. And yes, your knee's going to hurt for a while. It's going to sting for a while. Then you're going to get that, especially as you get older, then you're going to get that dull pain, you know, that something happened to the knee for a while, you know, before it all gets healed right. That's just a part of the process. And that's something that people don't really um, acknowledge. And then simultaneously, okay, so whatever your current achievement is, that represents having fallen down a bunch of times, but then you have your sights on stuff in the future too. And, you know, haters want to steady put up obstacles for you to get to the place that you want to get to the next level. And it might not even be haters. It just might be stuff you know what I mean like because the more you're out here in these competitive fields and the more you're fucking with corporate multinational money stuff just comes up people want things one way people think something one thing's gonna sell people gonna think another thing's gonna sell it's just hard out here in these creative streets but um you know I just it's so it's always interesting to me when people do put a focus on that struggle, because quite frankly, I think most people don't want to hear about the struggle. Most people just want to listen to their goddamn song and not worry whether or not somebody had to was crying, making it or something like that. I think some most people just want their pop culture and their art just to be in service of them and that is because they got their own problems to worry about and that's totally cool too and that is like I said I don't need anybody I hope if y'all enjoy who's your dad that's fine I don't need y'all to know what I did to and it was struggles it had to do to write it 
I just, you know, hope that you enjoy it because that's why I would not have gotten up off the ground had I not wanted somebody to, to enjoy it. You know what I mean? I don't, would not have done it just for me. But here's the thing that I'm just thinking, okay, related to all this kind of stuff. Because we want to enjoy our work, but at the same t- we want to enjoy people's work, but at the same time, we also want to acknowledge what they have to go through in order to make it. I'm just thinking like, you know, we talk a lot about giving people their flowers while they're here and stuff like that. I just think that maybe we need to expand that beyond just their artistry sometimes. I think we tend to respect the work that people have done and how it has touched us. But we also need to make sure that we praise and respect the artist's humanity and recognize the personal sacrifices it might have taken for them to make sure that the that the work got into the world to move us. I think we do need to really stop that whole thing about, you know, like the, the star song, All We See Is The Glory. Like we do have to really force ourselves to see our artists as the human beings they are because basically the way they're covered in the media, the way people talk on social media, everything is all, most of the talk about people is about just the glory or making them into people that like they don't have emotions and everything like that. And I think that if you're really a serious person about like showing respect to artists, giving them their flowers and stuff like that, I think part of that is kind of trying to work against that predominant thinking um and just realize that you know the artists we admire are doing jobs and working in fields that are very demanding while at the same time trying to carve out some personal happiness like the rest of us you know shit I'm exhausted coming home every day from doing what I do and all this kind of stuff I can't imagine what it'd be like to get up on stage and do a tour and so I no sooner want to go on stage like Mary J. Blige, I no sooner want to pull on a pair of thigh high boots and some booty shorts and do the merry dance to love no limit tomorrow night than the man on the moon I want to relax tomorrow night. I've been working a lot today But that's not the choice she has because she's in the middle of a tour. So that's all the stuff that I'm just kind of um, talking about. I just think it starts with being kinder and being more empathetic when we think about celebrities, when we post about them. And again, I'm not saying you can't read. I'm just talking about the people we admire. Because I'm not saying you can't read somebody that you think does something stupid, a celebrity you think does something stupid, or does something that you think is whack. By all means, read away. Okay, but the truth that this is the hard truth that a lot of us this is a hard truth that uh, that a lot of us don't face. Sometimes we can be hardest and sometimes we can be meanest to our faves. And that needs to change. Cuz sometimes it's the faves that get all like cuz we we are so personally invested that oh, how why does she wear that? Why does she do that song? Well, that's I think that's a personal affront, you know? I mean, so I just think on that, we need to be easier on our faves and really ex- acknowledge our faves' humanity. Okay, now I said that, y'all, and I mean that 100%. But at the same time, okay, we need to find some kind, gentler way to get a message to Mary J. Blige. Because while I was looking at the lyrics to know, um, I read that she is thinking about calling her next album. Look, I need to take a drink of my Red Bull before I can say this is so long. Hold on. 
Okay, Murray is thinking about calling her next album. Hold with me now. Stay with me. My Life 3. Dot, dot, dot. There's something about me, myself, and Mary Jane. Open parentheses, act two, close parentheses. Now, y'all, that's just too damn much. That's, <laughs> that's just too... First of all, like, you know how it is with the... um. In the streaming days, you're lucky if you get a two-word title on your screen while you're listening to something anyway. Much less a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> that thing be scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Probably using up your good battery life. I'm just saying, we need to lovingly encourage her to change that stuff. And you know what I was thinking about what would be a good title? Why not just name it after the Nas collabo? What if the album's just called Mary J. Blige? thriving what's hotter than that boom thrive how's how's the new mary j blige album what's the new mary j blige album it's thriving <laughs> that's what's the new mary j blige album is i think that that's a good i think that sets a good tone so but that's just me and that even goes after strength of the woman you know she talks about the strength of the woman oh was the woman still strong what what's up what's how's that strength of the woman from the last album she's thriving her strength is thriving so whatever so we will see um so to that end and just about paying respects i just wanted to make sure that i um did not leave without saying some words about the great writer Toni Morrison, who left us this week. Um, now, I'm not even going to lie in front like I'm the ultimate Toniologist or anything. Yes, I've read all of her novels at least once. All of them were struggles at times, but at the same time, when it was done, I felt like my emotional perceptions, just how I understood emotions and how they could be conveyed in words, was greatly expanded in the fight, in the struggle to get through. Um, and that's what she wanted her writing to be. I mean, she wanted her readers to work. I remember once a high school student came up to her and said that, oh, this book was so hard to read. And Ms. Um, Morrison responded back, well, it was really hard to write too. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was her, that was just the thing that she did. Um, Although, you know, I recently discovered that many of her books are on Audible and they're read by her. So I think when I, um, I think when I reread stuff and hold for one second. I think when I reread stuff and I, for some reason, I think I'm going to start with Song of Solomon. I'm going to read along with her voice so I can really just soak in the language. Like I'm reading the language and it's like her voice is saying the words. So I, that's something on my um, to-do list. I'm still in the midst of this long ass Frederick Douglass biography, which is fantastic, but it's long. But um, I think that might be my next um, read. So, of course, I've been reading countless obits and tributes about Ms. Morrison all week. And of all the stories that I've read, you know, because there have been all these anecdotes, two of them really stay with me um, that I would like to share with you at this time. One has to do with her friend, Bill Gunn. Now, he's the director that I mentioned earlier who had collaborated with Nina Simone's brother on that cult classic, Ganjin Hess. And Spike Lee is even called Bill um, one of the most underappreciated filmmakers of his time. And in addition to making films, Bill, he was an openly gay man. He was a novelist, screenwriter, and playwright. He was also an actor. He was once the understudy for 
um, the late James Dean on Broadway. And some of you 80s kids are going to know this. I ain't really watched the show like that. But he was Homer, a friend of Cliff Huxtable's father on a couple of episodes of The Cosby Show. So I'm sure a couple of y'all are going to be like, ah, and that's going to have some meaning. I was never that big of a fan of the show, so I would not know. Um, if it didn't have anything to do with Lisa Bonet, if she wasn't on it at the given time, then I just wasn't really paying attention. But um, Bill, you know, he was friends with Tony, and he also contracted AIDS in the 80s and um, had to be hospitalized. And then, you know, Tony had been his friend for years, rushed to the facility with a homemade cake. As she said, she later told someone, I knew he couldn't eat that cake, but he was happy to have that cake. And Bill died at age 59 in April 1989, one week before a new play of his was set to open at the public theater. So I just love that story, how she was about her friend and how she was about, I guess, just understanding the emotional significance of things beyond the practical, you know, um, which of course she would be as a novelist, right? And thinking in terms of metaphors and everything like that. But, you know, to sit there and make a homemade cake for somebody, knowing good and well that they could not eat it, but knowing that just seeing it and just knowing somebody did that for them would lift their spirits. That's a lot. Um, the other another story that came up that I really loved about her was involved her cataract removal surgery. I just thought this I just thought this was kind of funny. So she, I guess she had had cataracts for a long time. I guess that um, they had gotten bad or something. And I I think but my grandmother had cataracts too. And I guess it's one of those things if it develops slowly enough over time, and maybe you already wear glasses and stuff like that, you might not notice how bad. It is because you just think that that's the way stuff looks, right? So she had her cataracts removed, child. And then she, this is her um, saying, I looked at myself in the mirror and wondered, who is this woman and when did she get to be that age? Because what the doctor explained to her is that because of the nature of her cataract, she'd basically been looking at herself through you know, them Hollywood glamour lenses that are like all softening and softening all the, that's basically how she had been looking at herself for years. Like she was, you know, Liz Taylor or all these, um, you know, old Hollywood stars that don't have any wrinkle, any surface because of the lens they're using. So I just thought that was kind of funny because she, of course, is so wise and so dignified and everything like that. But it was fun to know that just like most of us, she fretted about her looks. So that was cool. And then while I was going through these tributes and things, I went back through some of her nonfiction, um, which I often read because I'm always often marvel at her sharp social and artistic um, commentary. Like there was this one line she wrote this in, and she wrote this in 2016, and I feel like it just gets more relevant every day to kind of the stuff even I was talking about at the beginning. She wrote, "So scary." are the consequences of a collapse of white privilege that many Americans have flocked to a political platform that supports and translates violence against the defenseless as strength. I'll say that last part again. That supports and translates violence against the defenseless as strength. So that's what, what's that but an ice raid? Who? I mean, you're showing strength by attacking defenseless people and that's the whole thing with terrorism too it's like what strength are you showing 
by showing up with an automatic weapon in a Walmart where people don't, are, you know, well, some people are armed, but in a Walmart where people aren't thinking. That is translating violence against the defenseless as a weird kind of strength. And that's just a really, I think that's just a really interesting way to think about a lot of this stuff um, that's going down. It's just thinking that if they, if they, if stuff was actually strong, if they were actually strong with it, you know, if white superiority was all that, then they wouldn't have to take on people that are at, at a disadvantage for economic, what, for whatever reasons. So, you know, it's just, I just thought that was a really powerful way to keep, put it, just something I keep in mind. Um, and one thing I really loved about her too, is that, you know, she had every reason to be haughty about her writing. She had every reason to look down on everybody. If you ain't won, won a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer, she had reason to think that you didn't even need to own a pen or have a notes app, that nothing you would ever do would be worth her while. So you might as well just, um, I don't know, do something else. But I love that she really was committed to fostering other people's creativity. People say that she was a great teacher in um, Princeton. And I mentioned that earlier quote, you know, about her saying that, you know, basically, if a book you want to read ain't written, write it. And that's, that is a very democratizing view of art that she, as somebody that actually um, got to the highest echelons of literature, did not necessarily have to continue to have. Um, and I just love this about, but I, I, but you know, I do think this is kind of grounded in her because she was always grounded in black culture, and I think that was the thing. You know, you can't be so sedity, you know, you can't be so whatever if you still want to remain connected to everyday black folk. And so this is what she said um, about just creativity and art making in general. Um, this is from an essay called The Individual Artist, and it's from a um, book of, it's from her most recent book of nonfiction, The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. I'll put that on the um, website. But she says, now for a very personal note, I do not want to go into my old age without social security, but I can. I do not want to go into my old age without Medicare, but I can. I'll face it. I do not like the notion of not having a grand army to defend me, but I can face that. What I cannot face is living without my art. Like many of you here with your own particular backgrounds, I come from a people who have always refused to live that way. In the fields, we would not live without it. In chains, we would not live without it. And we lived historically in a country without everything, but not without our music, not without our art. And we produced giants. So I just love that, you know, going from the importance of creativity to her, but just understanding the importance of creativity to the um, sustainability of black life and black culture. 
And, you know, yes, black culture has produced many geniuses. We've talked about several today. And I didn't want to forget, on a side note, don't forget that Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace is now available on DVD and digital download. Um, But as I suggested earlier, when we celebrate geniuses, we have to be careful not to glorify them beyond their existence in flesh and blood. And for that reason, Roxanne's gaze... um, New York Times piece, The Legacy of Toni Morrison, hit me the deepest um, in how we should um, remember her. She writes, But to attribute her brilliance to some higher power would be a disservice to the very real life she lived, how hard she worked, and how often she had to break through glass ceilings so that others could follow. I often think about how Morrison wrote her debut novel, The Bluest Eye, in stolen moments while working full-time as an editor and raising her two sons as a single mother. It is this kind of truth that reminds us that she actively put in the work of being a writer, even in circumstances that would have stifled lesser people. The best way we can honor Toni Morrison's legacy is to remember her as the astonishing and brilliant and very human woman she was. It is her humanity that made her so extraordinary. So, got a little teared up on that one. But, you know, again, that just, that's just, I think, sums up, you know, all that we've been talking about this week is that, Yes, we have the greatness and we have this genius of these performers uh, or writers, these artists, but let's always remember that it's their humanity that makes them so extraordinary and let's try to treat them as such. So, kind of a preachy show, but whatever, I just, you know, it's... um. You know, just want to make sure I got in. You know, we this is Craig's Pop Life. We say names. We honor elders. That's what we do. We have fun. Sometimes we can all have a whole show of fun. But sometimes things happen in a week, and we just need to pay our respects to, you know, those who came before, those who made it possible for us to do what we do. And that's what this week was. We just we had to we had to say names. We had to pay tribute. Um. So that's all for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe. You can even subscribe, I mean, subscribe on the iTunes, but you can also subscribe to it on the Spotify. So by all means, do that too. Um, Also, it would be great if you could rate the show. You don't have to write a full-on review. All you have to do is, um, you know, push the number of stars. And lastly, if you could share it with someone you think might like it, I'd really appreciate it very much. So until next time, y'all, be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, be your damn self. Be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. I loved it so much. I play it. In fact, let's play it three times. You can never get enough, right? Be your damn self. <laughs> okay, love y'all. Bye. <laughs>